Hi, this is Nathan Pierce coming to you for another episode of Red Talks, Ranting Engineers on DevOps. And today I have with me Michael O'Leary. Michael, say hello and introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Michael O'Leary. I am a systems engineer at a financial company in Boston. And I uh, primarily work on F5, so that's sort of my, my strong suite. Uh, but I get involved in a lot of um, programmability and a lot of uh, automation and DevOps type work. Excellent. So you're the right person on this uh, video podcast. Maybe you can work on the ranting because you've got the other two bits ticked off. It's ranting engineers and DevOps. Remember? Yeah, yeah, especially in the morning. Feel, feel free to go, go crazy on a couple of topics. Now, there's an obvious thing I have to bring up first is the similar accent. You're the first person we've had on, and might be for a while, that comes from that backward little country of ours, by little, I mean ridiculously big, Australia. So whereabouts are you from in Australia? I'm from a town called Adelaide, um, the capital of South Australia, uh, which is a state in Australia. Now, how's this for random? Because Michael and I were both at the same conference in Chicago, and I was presenting at it, and he was in the room, and it turns out we're both from Adelaide, which is random because whenever anyone you meet says, oh, yeah, I've been to Australia, and then you ask where they're from, the one place they will never say to you is Adelaide. They will always say Sydney or Melbourne. So that's kind of weird given. And now I'm on the West Coast here on the East Coast. I'm in California, and um, hence it's brighter, and you're over there in Boston. Um, but, yeah, so it was great to meet up in Chicago and start chatting about some of the stuff you've been working on. Now, what is it that you you are automating and orchestrating with? I mean, what, what kind of technologies are you you using? Um, we've had a few other guests, you know, some have been from colleagues of mine, some have been from systems integrators. So, you know, you're at the other end. So tell us, what is it um, that you think about all of this? Okay, here's the ranting. Get ready for the rant. Uh, we use the VMware stack of cloud management products. So we have a highly virtualized environment like most uh, corporations these days. And we have a private cloud. Now, private cloud is obviously more than just a virtualization. It's things like uh, infrastructure as a service. So um, automation's a, a, a big one. VM lifecycle management, showback and chargeback, um, and the ability to um, present to users a self-service catalog so that users can click on a web interface and do um, tasks that are we have automated for them. Now, where does F5 and, and automation play into this? Um, we have a lot of uh, tasks that we do as system administrators that we automate today with scripts. And five years ago, maybe it was okay to do that with a PowerShell script and a batch file, and every morning you click the batch file and, and that's fine. But today, you really need your automation to be not just automated, but orchestrated well. So we use a product called VMware's uh, vRealize Orchestrator, or VRO. Now, we use a, a full suite of VMware products, but that is the product that does the orchestration um, and, and a large part of the automation. Um, so a very easy example. Um, every morning, I back up my F5 devices and their configs. And uh, of course, if you were um, looking after maybe one device, you could come in every morning and just hit the backup button uh, and, and, and save that backup off to the network. But if you manage a large fleet of devices or if you have any sort of sophistication, you're going to automate that. And maybe you start by automating uh, at the command line. And then after you've, you've done that, you want to orchestrate this. So you, you have a little system to make that backup happen via the command line. 
every morning at 7 a.m. in my case is when I happen to do my backups. Um, but after a little while, you want to be a little bit more sophisticated. So you'll perhaps use an orchestration tool to make that backup and then save that backup to somewhere off the network. And if it doesn't happen, send me an email and um, maybe one other thing. Maybe uh, give me an option to encrypt the backup or not. And maybe that's a checkbox in my little job. So there are lots of little things about your automation that you might want to change later, um, things like frequency or things like options. Uh, and that's where the sort of the, the black art of orchestration automation comes in. That's actually a really good journey. I like the way you broke that down to just first automating a certain specific task that will just make things a little easier. And when you're comfortable with that, then start extending on that and then into orchestration. I always like to ask people, like, how do you get started? Because I think once you start really getting going, it's very quickly to forget the nightmare of starting out on this process. I'm just like, what do I even automate the first time? Like to just get my head around this idea of this new way of thinking, those kind of things. So, so that's cool. I mean, that was something like quite simple of just backing up the devices, but, but that journey you just explained, it gets you used to, you know, how do I script something simple? How do I then execute that script from something else? And then how do I, and that, that's a great journey, like um, where you can get comfortable with each step as you progressively integrate and automate more and more as you go. Is that, did I summarize that right? Absolutely. And then the next step is presenting that to users. So here's a, another example, if I can rant a little bit. Uh, I have a, a really handy eye rule, so I've, um, which I call redirects. Um, and I have an eye rule that says um, any incoming HTTP request, if it matches um, a value that I have in a list, then send that user a 302 redirect uh, to a value that I have in another list. Now that list or key value pair is a um, is a, uh, a, a table in a in like an I file in, in the F5. Uh, and it's basically a, a virtual server that um, does all of my redirects internally so I can have friendly URLs. We use Workday, for example. Workday is a cloud-hosted application. Um, but I don't want my users to have to remember the full URL, so they just type in Workday, hit enter, and uh, the DNS system sends them to F5. They hit a virtual server and they get redirected to a, a very long URL that they don't have to remember. Now, that's pretty cool in itself. And people can email me and say, hey, Mike, can you set up another link? I have another system that I want to yep. um, create a, a link for. But given that anything that you can do through the GUI in F5, you can do through TMSH. And anything you can do through TMSH, you can do via REST. And anything you can do via REST, you can create a web portal for in a variety of products. In my case, it's VMware's um, um, VRO. Um, I have presented to end users the ability to create their own redirects on, a net on the network, and they don't know that they're actually making a DNS entry in InfoBlox and then making an update to F5 via REST um, because all they're doing is clicking on a link in a self-service catalog that we've presented for them. So they can't really screw it up. Um, and you can, you can implement many things. So InfoBlox is our DNS server. We have a, a Microsoft um, Certificate Authority. Um, and all of these things can be automated and then sort of patched together in one sort of automated workflow. Um, Stitched together is a term I heard the other day. Stitching together all these different processes. I quite like that one, stitching up workflows of, of multiple different systems together, yeah. Then, so that's, 
I like that example, and for anyone who doesn't know what a like an IRL is, that's um, a data plane scripting language. So you can intercept communications and have them do something else um, programmatically. So that that was a that was a great example, and and interestingly, that's how um, that's even how we services like I find Silverline, you know, the security service that uh, we offer. It's a SaaS offering for F5 for application security and DDoS mitigation. Those guys are using. Um, data groups that you can update yourself. You can have access to the data group as a customer. You might not be able to mess with the data plane IRL, but you can actually at least affect the logic that's been applied to the IRL. So by just having a before and after field of when you see this, I want this to be the result. And it's a great way of just handing over some control versus just giving the admin login and saying to people, oh my God, don't screw this up. I know you don't know this system. And, and that's a, one of the bigger, most terrifying things, I think, when people start out automating is just how do they create a self-service environment without handing over danger? That's a great question. Is that a question for me? Or? That is a question. So how, how do you do that? You obviously start by picking something that you want to automate. So let's take backups, for example, because hopefully everybody does backups. Learn how to automate the backup via TMSH if you have to, to begin with. Um, there are little parameters you can do. So you can set a password. You can encrypt your, your backup. Um, you can save as a, an, a UCS or a SCF, I think the, uh, the options are. So there's a couple of things you might want to automate. And while you're automating, you might think, well, I don't want to hard code these variables. So maybe I'll make them as input variables in my, in my script. And instead of having a script where I always save something that uh, maybe an encrypted backup, maybe I'll have an option uh, and I'll, I'll put a dash encrypt in, into my command um, and I can encrypt the, the backup if I want to. Uh, once you've automated something, you might want to call that automation from something else. So um, you will... Uh, use a tool that will, will orchestrate it. In my case, it's VRO, but I used to use Automize, a, a little Windows tool, kind of like task scheduler on, on steroids um, yeah. to do it at, at certain times of the day. So, you know, that's how um, I sort of got started down the, down the road with backups. Um, but then I wanted to do some cooler things that affected you, end users. So what are the things that end users ask for all the time that um, we hate doing as um, system administrators? Uh, for me, certificate, um, creating SSL certificates, uh, even if people have access to those, um, they typically don't like to do that. So I, I've automated that. Now that's not an F5 specific thing, but it's still an automation thing. Um, and then once I've, that's, that's easy to do via PowerShell. There are people that have, have done that before, so you can download a script and sort of modify it um, as needed. But once you've got a script, whether it's a PowerShell script or, or any other sort of script, um, you want a way for users to be able to run that easily. A user, you don't want to give them a batch file and ask them to click on it. That, that's a little bit dangerous. So um, the way to present that to users depends on the tool that you use. If you use an enterprise level tool, something like VMware's um, uh, Virtual Center Automation uh, Center, they, they've renamed it now. Um, help me out with the name. Uh, there's VRO, VRA. VRA, yeah, VRA. Yeah. V Realize Automation, that's the new name for VCA. And uh, VRA allows you to present a, a web front end and have users click on a, um, a, a link, essentially, which is a, a kicking off a job that you've automated. The, the beauty of VRA is that it integrates nicely with Active Directory. So all of a sudden, you can present of uh, automated tasks to users based on the Active Directory groups they're in, which is a very common uh, way of permissioning things that we're all familiar with. 
So that's my ranting answer to your question. How do you control who has access to the automation? Use a system outside of the uh, the F5 if you're automating the F5. I guess you, sorry, I'm slightly distracted. Bella, the Red Talks mascot, is making one hell of a noise behind me right now. So um, oh. that's what happens when you do things live, isn't it? Yeah, and I think my my email beeped a minute ago. I've just turned that off now as well. I'm I'm getting worse at this as I go. I think the distraction. Well, I, I think Bella's getting excited by my. Um, I think she was really intrigued. Uh, no, she's actually climbing under a pillow. She doesn't really know about tech that much, but but she's our mascot, Bella the Wonder Dog. Um, I think that's a really important thing you were just saying there that maybe some people overlook, but it's safer when you hand over the execution of the workflow via another tool that can have its own RBAC and its own access control. And I'll give an example of this. Um, Quite often in a infrastructure device, managing RBAC on each individual device is very cumbersome and it just it's just painful to manage. Whereas if you can have a trust relationship between that infrastructure device and the orchestration system, and then you can manage with tenant accounts who can execute from the other side of that, well, your RBAC to the infrastructure device is simple. Can the orchestration tool talk to that device and does it have the permission to run the workflow? That's all you need to do for that part. And then you can manage the orchestration and the access control via you know, an orchestrator tool that might be, you might be able to sync up with your AD, um, which has got all your user groups and your permissions are just based on group um, membership. So I think that's something that a lot of people sort of overlook when they start looking at this, they, they immediately start looking at RBAC of the actual device that's inbound in the data plane. And that's probably not where you want to be logging on and touching and modifying access control all the time. I mean, the less you do there, the better. Would that be a, a fair assumption? Absolutely. I have a service account is what I've called them. And uh, I actually still use Active Directory, believe it or not, but it's a, a service account that I've sort of um, configured in the orchestrator. So no matter who runs the automation job, um, the F5 in this case is always going to see the incoming user as the same user. Uh, and that user is not an administrator of the device. Um, I forget the RBAC role that I um, configured, to be honest, but um, that it, it's exactly right. You can control or govern is the term I typically use. Govern your access to the automation with a tool outside of what's actually being automated. And that tool can be doing the auditing, it can be handling all of those things without worrying about the auditing filling up precious disk space on the actual inbound device. I mean, the less that you're pushing out on there, the better. Um, yeah, I, I, I keep hearing that same kind of fear from a lot of people. There's there's two fears that pop up a lot. The, there are other fears, but the two the two main ones are, are that: Am I giving over keys to my precious device? Which, as we've just discussed, you do not have to do that. There's very easy ways around that. And then the second thing is actually um, what happens when you uh, how do you like get started? and not do yourself out of a job like isn't automation gonna cost me like like do i really want to even get started on this and, and i love asking this question of people because anyone who started doing any kind of automation immediately turns around and says no this now enables me to do my job did i get that right would you say absolutely uh i don't think anybody should ever be scared of automation um nobody has ever lost their job because they've automated too well. 
there's always going to be work for people that automate. And we're only automating um, operational tasks that um, can be automated. So there's always going to be engineering level tasks that need attention. And I think if you take a backup example, I, I don't back up my devices ever. If the job fails, I get emailed. So I don't even check every day that my backups worked because I know I'm going to get emailed if the backup file isn't where it's expected to be by 7.05. So now I've opened up my morning to do other things. And we've done that in a lot of ways. And it really impresses management when you can automate something. And then uh, we call it left shift. It's a bit of a buzzword. But if you can take a task that's maybe a level two or a level three task, a, a fairly difficult task, and push it to someone um, that might be junior to you or someone that does a role that's more administrative than your engineering role, um, that saves the company money because problems uh, and tasks get done at a cheaper level. Uh, and it also saves you time um, in your job because you get to focus on the strategic objectives that your job actually entails. There was an organization I talked to um, this is a little while back now, and they had run into a problem where they redesigned their, their delivery stack. So the technologies they used for IDS, for application security, for firewalling, they'd gone out and they'd reviewed, they'd looked at all the technologies out there, they'd picked everything that they wanted, and then they got to the point when they started implementing. And the initial implementation, so just racking a stack and getting everything in, they've budgeted the time for that, and that all went fine. But then when they had to start deploying applications, they found they were using 10% of the functionality of each device because they just didn't have the operational bandwidth to use all that functionality that impressed them and made them buy those technologies in the first place. So they kind of wished, ah, you just did what I do. <laughs> Left it for no, yeah, that was my girlfriend, so I'll get in trouble for that later. Now that I said that, yeah, just put mine on silent quickly. Okay, so yeah, these guys they they weren't getting out of the technology what they'd paid for because they just didn't have the time because the pace at which changes were required and things were being rolled out was faster than them being able to work out how to get each feature right, but without introducing operational risk. They didn't want to do it in a hurry, and it wasn't until they just said, look, no more deployments. We need like time to work out how to do what we've already been doing efficiently and more effectively. And then we can bring that knowledge to future deployments. And that's the only way we're going to keep up with the speed of business. So again, in that case, it wasn't the automation in no way was going to do them out of a job. They, they convinced the company they worked for to buy all this top end stuff and then they weren't using it anywhere to near its potential. So it actually really helped them justify that expense going on because only when they'd automated did they have the time to use all the functionality. Interesting. Yeah, That's so I, people shouldn't be afraid. I, I couldn't agree more. And also there's the operational risk side. I mean, one day you could come in and the coffee machine could be broken. And for me, like I'm, I'm fairly dependent. That's a bad day if the coffee's gone. I want stuff automated on that day. I mean, who knows what could happen? Oh, absolutely. You know, when, um, when something breaks, there's usually finger pointing in the organization. But if you've got an automated task and it's always done the same way, nobody can say you broke it because all you've done is run the same automation that's been done before. So I can't think of any good examples, but um, definitely automation is safer when it comes to things like user input. 
and I think just for me, it becomes it just becomes a puzzle that gets more and more interesting. Like you start with a small script, and then it ends up being a hundred lines, <laughs> and then you realize, you know, I could put some cool debug in here, so I will never have to look at this script again. So you start writing in the debug stuff, and then you put in some more conditional things of like, oh, but if you see this happen, or or like we're getting low on disk for where I write my logs to send an email to tell me that I'm not going to be able to write my logs in a week from now because the disk, and you just. It, just gets out of control and maybe one day we're going to get to Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines where we've just gone too far. Um, I don't think we're too close to that, but I don't know. I, I find it quite an addictive thing once you start automating things. Like like how much can I get this to just be streamlined, to, to add a debug mode in so that if ever something goes wrong, actually I can just run it again in debug mode and it will tell me what's wrong but only when I want to know that information. If everything's fine, don't give me that level of output. Those kind of little really tweaks, you start getting really good at it after a while of looking for debug and error handling and event handling. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the, that's why I called it a black art before. So things like error handling, you get a new appreciation for it. It really makes you a better IT person in general. Um, but also, you get an idea of abstract thinking. So you become more creative. So a good example of this for me has been, at the beginning of all this, I had a script that would back up my devices. Um, actually, let me use another example. The example of updating the um, iRule and the data group. So I had a script that would, um, uh, via REST, uh, contact the F5 and um, add a value to a data group in, um, in an, uh, that was referenced by an iRule. And then I had a similar request because I made this pretty cool thing, sort of like a URL shortener. You know how you have... Um, bit.ly, yeah. Uh, so when you put a URL into like a tweet, it shortens it. So I made one of these just using F5. And um, when you, uh, I made sort of this automated script um, in VRA and you could put in a short URL, put in a really long URL, hit shorten it for me, and it would generate a random short URL and create that in DNS and then add an entry to a data group and then when you clicked on the short URL via DNS, you'd hit a F5 VIP with a data group IRL attached, and you would get redirected to the long URL. So it was a really cool URL shortener service that I use internally at work, mostly for you know coolness factor. And then I wanted to put that um, automation into our uh, user self-service catalog. But I hard-coded the name of the data group the first time around when I did it for the redirects um, workflow. So I'd hard-coded something, which we all know never to do, but you know, I forgot. Um, and I hadn't modularized my workflow enough. So instead of having a script that's 100 lines long now, I try to have a script that's maximum 10, 20 lines long. And if I have something that's 100 lines long, I'll make 10 small workflows and then um, stitch them together. Because you'll use those small pieces later so um, the two things that I always tell, you know, the junior people um, at work are variableize your um, scripts, um, don't hard code things, use use variables, and modularize. I, I think I made up that term, so tell me if it's not the right term. But it's don't write a script that's a hundred lines long. Write a couple of scripts that are shorter, and then join them together because you'll use one of those short ones again later. 
I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I mean, it does vary depending on the language you're using. So, you know, in Python, I'd probably try and do that for Python scripts. But then if I was using something like Node.js, instead of making lots of little scripts, I'd use functions within it and make sure that those functions all, you know, use callbacks where they were needed and just break it up into individual bits of code instead of just one chaotic and just for debugging and all those kind of things it's much much easier if you have these functional areas whether it's you know it's broken into smaller chunks for for one language because maybe it doesn't do functions or or you know using functions in another but yeah that is that is key and in fact, even in a language that does support functions, it is always good to just break them into individual tasks, especially when you're starting, because then you can troubleshoot them individually really easily without, if you've got one big long script and you go to troubleshoot and maybe you don't close out a bracket, it will break the whole script, not that function alone. Like you can do some bigger damage. So it's again, I think it's mitigating your risk area. Is, uh, is what you get from doing smaller scripts as you described. That definitely is a way to, to get more comfortable with it. I mean, not everyone has a, um, a full stack developer handy in, handy in their infrastructure team who can just write that out in like an hour and give it to you. I mean, when you don't have that, then yeah, definitely break stuff up. I, I couldn't agree more. So I, I, I talked to someone recently and um, they actually, in their infrastructure team, had hired a developer. Someone straight out of college, but had all those fundamentals of, you know, source code management and revisioning systems. And I'm starting to see this trend. I love to see this trend. It's actually really cool. But, but more and more people are hiring developers into infrastructure teams. I mean, is this something you're seeing yourself? Are you, are you doing that where you work? Or are you, you Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We just, um, we just hired someone who um, came out of college um, as more or less a developer uh, into infrastructure. And one of the first things he did, and he's, he's a young guy, just came out of college, is looked at our, um, our scripts and started to tell us why we had done um, a pretty poor job in, in programming. Um, he's, and, and these are basic things, right? Because we're infrastructure guys. So things like your comments aren't supposed to tell me, you know, aren't supposed to show off about how, how your code works. Your comments are supposed to um, be short and sort of, and, and, and supposed to, um, well, I don't understand. Well, I didn't really listen to him. He's just out of college. But, but it's really important to to have developers, and that you know, the term infrastructure as code is um, sort of a, a term that I think maybe will be used more. But it, to treat your infrastructure as um, as code makes a lot of sense. So people are starting to do things like I, I think I've spoken to you about this. Um, use source code repositories for. Uh, automation that is that is infrastructure automation and normally we think of source code repositories as developer tools um, it's important to to write your scripts in a in a way that allows for um, robustness so you mentioned error code and uh, error handling before now all of my scripts put out error codes when I when I was a fairly junior sort of infrastructure person I would write a script and if it worked that was great and if it failed I would know because it didn't work now I might always return a code or I might return a value depending on what I'm trying to do. So absolutely. Um, and, and also I've read industry articles. Um, Microsoft had a good one the other day um, that I read about Microsoft's own cloud journey. So you could probably Google it. It was maybe a two-page article. 
and they had a couple of sections about lessons learned after they sort of moved their internal IT to the cloud. Obviously, they use Azure because they're a cloud provider as well. Um, but they had these lessons learned, and they had lessons around that. And then they had a lesson um, around um, people skills that were needed. Or, or um, And what they found is they needed more what they called um, developer infrastructure people and less what they called solution deliverers, which was a little bit of a vague term, but it sounded like um, less people that were dedicated to a single application and more broad infrastructure um, developers. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, you know, maybe five years ago, you could get a job as a, as a network guy who just knew Cisco iOS, or you could get a job as, you know, a Microsoft certified um, operating server operator. But I think those days are largely passing us by. And these days, you really need to be um, uh, very broad. And so those sort of general automation development infrastructure skills count so a lot. Last, last question. Um, looking for a pro tip here for anyone who might have been working in infrastructure for a long time. And uh, how did they get started? I mean, you've mentioned PowerShell a couple of times. Like, where did you start as far as the scripting language you use? Were you using shell scripts, or you know, what's what's a good place to start? I, I keep I oh, I went to uh, codeacademy.com and I just went and did Python and JavaScript courses on there. They're free, you know, self-paced kind of learning type thing. And then after doing that, just got completely out of control and immersed myself in it to the point where. I see it in my sleep now, but you know, what about yourself? How did you how did you get into this? Where did you begin? Oh, that's a great question. Well, uh, because I work in primarily a Windows shop, ninety percent of our servers are Windows. It was started out with uh, BB Script, and typically um, I would be asked, um, "We have four hundred servers, and I need you to change this registry entry on each one." And that used to be one of my interview questions that I would ask people that came in for the job because some people would literally answer. Well, I would RDP to every single server and I'd change that registry key through the GUI. And that's a, a wrong answer. So you need to work out a way to script it. Um, honestly, I would just Google it and, and work it out at the beginning. And I would, I would find someone who's done it before. I would maybe do it on a test machine and then I would create a, a loop or reference a text file, a, a list of some kind. And then you begin to get a bit more sophisticated. Um, I took a PowerShell course. I've definitely done a lot of learning in the same um, way as you. I didn't use Code Academy, but I've um, I must have read hundreds of blogs on on automation. Um, PowerShell. I've probably mentioned it just because we're a Windows shop, so often it becomes something that you commonly use. Uh, but I think it depends on sort of the need. And uh, for me. It was always a request from management to do things like that. If you get a request to change, to, I don't know, uh, let's say you get a request to install an antivirus product on every end user's workstation. Um, or give me a report on all of the servers that haven't been rebooted in the last 16 days. How are you going to do that? Well, you're probably going to automate it. And you probably start out with, with Googling and, and asking how. So um, if I'm picking it up, that's what um, the key ingredient was. Um, curiosity and tenacity to just do things a little different. It sounds like a key element to the recipe. Yes. Yeah, I think so. No, that's cool. That's cool. Um, I, I try and keep these to a, a sort of certain time limit, but I'd, I'd love to have you back on on a future episode. You definitely have a wealth of knowledge that um, could share. And we, we didn't even really give 
get to plug the uh, local user group. Do you want to quickly mention it now that you do in Boston there? Share with everybody. Uh, absolutely. Thanks. I run a, uh, a meetup group. So if you go to meetup.com, uh, it's a pretty common social networking platform uh, for meeting up with people in your local area. I live and work in Boston. So um, the group is called Boston F5 User Group. And uh, if you're on meetup.com, uh, check it out. You can join us. Um, we um, primarily look at F5 products, but I, of course, don't work for F5, and, and we end up talking mostly about automation orchestration above the network layer, things that are layer four and above, um, and, and automation. That's really cool. That's that's great to hear, actually. There's a infrastructure group that's focused on automation. That's um, I hope we see more and more of that coming along. So. I hope we can have you again uh, sometime, Michael, when uh, we can create a bit more time and talk more about some of the automation that you've done. I love that um, eye roll uh, URL shortener that you created. That's uh, that's actually a brilliant idea. We need more people thinking like that, like you have. That would be a good example. Maybe next time I can show you the code because there's some interesting things. Do you want people to be able to reverse engineer the link? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. You know, yeah. you don't, but you can't make it random, right? Because two people could accidentally generate the same link. So um, I, that's how I learned what base 64 and base 62 were. You know, before that, I never really thought, what's the difference between base 62 and base 64? So yeah, that's the way you learn. Awesome. We'll make sure we meet up again and, uh, and have another chat. But um, so that's the end of another episode of Red Talks. You've been listening to Nathan Pierce. That is me and Michael O'Leary. That is that guy. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks a lot.